Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. There is a beautiful legend about the three wise men who followed the star to Bethlehem. And the legend kind of goes something like this. One of them, of the three wise men, he was a young man. And with his youthful idealism, he was looking for a king. And so he was excited and carried gold and, in his mind, a fitting gift for royalty. Another was a middle-aged man. And to satisfy his deep questions that were disturbing his now much more maturing mind, he longed to find God. So his gift was frankincense with which to worship God whom he was longing to find. The third was an aged wise man who now with many, many years, many a sin-stained year behind him, he longed to discover a Savior. And feeling that his Savior must suffer, he took along with him the gift of healing, which is myrrh. Now, I'm not sure if any of that, likely none of it is actually true. It is likely all legend. However, it very accurately reflects the unbelievably great diversity of opinion and guesses about who the wise men were why they came, uh, how many of them came, where they came from, all of that. Now, in truth, what I want you to note with me today is this. Matthew, had that been his point, could have cleared all of that up for us. Truly, with just a verse or two, Matthew could have added some facts that clarified where are these guys from, how many of them came, What did this caravan look like, right? But ironically, in our humanness, we get bogged down with the stuff that doesn't matter. Why does Matthew include this story? And that's what I want you to note with me today as we walk through this text. I think its purpose is this. The truth is Jesus is worthy of our sacrificial worship. Why? Because he sacrificially came to rescue us from sin. Remember, chapter 1 is framing for us chapter 2. And remember where we're at. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, Yahweh, saves. This is the child in the manger. And this is still Matthew's purpose. It's still his point. Now remember, as Matthew writes this gospel, he is writing to prove to Jews, that Jesus is actually the promised Messiah. Jesus is actually the king. He is the son of David. He is bringing the kingdom of God into reality, and he is the fulfillment of the promised deliverance that we've had all the way back to Genesis 3. Now, As we walk through our text, Matthew did this in in the beginning in chapter 1. He's going to do it again. He gives us briefly kind of a setting, kind of some background in verses 1 and 2. So first we see the wise men. They are coming to worship. 
verses 1 and 2. Now, a lot of questions exist about them, and so we're going to run through several of these very quickly and try and give a, a framework for the wise men. And there, truthfully, there are so many conjectures, we could spend the day just dealing with all the conjectures, right? We, we don't have to do that, all right? So first, who are these guys? Again, there's a lot of absurd traditions, and I'm going to tell you some of those here initially and some guesses about who these guys are. Some perceive that these guys were three actually kings, right? Some of the songs we sang, they, uh, uh, they talk about them as kings. In all likelihood, they absolutely were not kings. Uh, because there are three gifts, the perception is there are three guys, three wise men. And yet, we don't know. Uh, some have guessed that they're a representation of the three families that come out of the flood. Shem, Ham, Japheth. And there, therefore, this is why one of them in some paintings, you'll notice, is Ethiopian in his descent. Uh, they even have uh, names for these guys that have developed down through history. Caspar, you probably heard of, Balthazar, and then Melchor is the third one. And their skulls, it is believed, were discovered in the 12th century by the Bishop Reynald of Cologne. And they are in a priceless uh, a casket there in a great cathedral. Now, likely, most of that is not true, right? Most of that is just wild guesses and conjecture, all right? Truthfully, these wise men are part of a priestly group that, that goes back all the way, it is believed, to ancient Persia. Uh, this group uh, existed throughout history in various empires and places, especially though in Babylon. And we'll see some connection uh, to Babylon here in a minute. In truth, who are these guys? Very likely, they're religious men seeking out a religious phenomenon to them. Th this is unique. This is something special is going on here they realize that, they understand that, and they go to seek out this truth, this phenomenon, if you would. Now, how many were there? Again, whatever their number, their traveling group is likely so big that it creates a stir in Jerusalem. When they come into the city, when this group arrives, there's like, uh, uh, this ruckus in the city, like, who are these people? Why have they come? What is their purpose? This word goes back to Herod. The, the fact that three came or that they were three kings, in truth, is probably completely, completely false, okay? Where did they come from? Well, Matthew tells us they came from the east. But where is the east? There's, a again, Many different places that have been thrown out there. Parthia, Babylon, Arabia, Egypt even. So all, all of these places are thrown out there. But very likely they have come from Babylon. Now following the captivity in Babylon, many times for us we think of the Jewish people all going home. But in truth there were some that settled there permanently. Those settlements may well have had influence still on this group, and they would have known of about the prophecy of Messiah. 
Some connect this to Daniel. Daniel being in Babylon, Daniel at one point being put over this group of wise men. There are connections that have been made there. Now, I think it's difficult to suggest that that goes 600 years to the arrival of Jesus. Um, I don't know that his influence lasts quite that long, right? Joseph's influence in Egypt lasted one generation and they had forgotten about him. So I think that might be a, a mild stretch. However, the reality is colonies of Jews still lived in and near Babylon and likely would have had some degree potentially of influence with this group, right? And so this is where their questions, understanding may well have come from. What about the star? We have a star that they see and that they follow. Again, great conjecture on this one. Number one, this is a natural event. This is a natural phenomenon. One commentator I read actually said Halley's Comet was flying in 10 or 11 BC. Now, again, depending on when you date the birth of Jesus, that's four years off, maybe six years off, right? It, but, you know, commentators, they'll throw anything against the wall at times and see what sticks. You know what I'm saying? Um, so some argue this is a natural occurrence in the sky. Some suggest it is supernatural, that God is placing this light in the sky in a sense to announce the Redeemer has come. A third option is that an angel specifically comes and presents, as it were, a light in the sky to the wise men, and that light draws them and they follow, they come to this. Now, my conclusion, if I had to make one, is that this absolutely is supernatural. These wise men who did uh, engage in the discipline, the study of astrology, the stars, they see something that doesn't fit. And they say, what is that? What's going on with that? And they start researching and they start working and they start, and before long, they realize this is announcing something. This is, this is telling us of something. And so they take off. So I think, my guess, if I were held down, would be uh, that this is supernatural. This is something God places there and God is at work. In part, I think that is because when they arrive in Jerusalem, and likely they arrive in Jerusalem for this purpose, where else would a king of Israel be located but the capital? So they come to Jerusalem with the anticipation that he is there. And yet, when they realize that he's not, the star appears again in verse 9. And they are, again, led. And that's why I think this is supernatural, right? Uh, next, why did they come? Well, in their minds, a king deserved a rightful deference, a reverence to Jesus. Why? Because he is the second person of the Trinity come in the form of man to redeem humanity. Is that why the wise men came to worship? No, I don't think it is. <laughs> Right. And I think if we say that, we're saying much more, I think, than Matthew does. Now, I think what Matthew is expecting us to do as we engage with chapter two and the wise men, I think he is expecting us to remember in chapter one. I told you who this was. You remember, I told you this was Emmanuel, God with us. I told you his name would be Jesus, which literally means Yahweh saves. I told you that's who this was. So 
The wise men are coming and they are humbling themselves and they are worshiping and they are offering this reverence. And though they may not fully understand you reading Matthew, you certainly do. You, you know who this is and you know that he deserves to be worshiped, right? So this is the perspective. This is, I think, Matthew's focus. Now, Ultimately, what's the purpose? Why, why include this account? And I want to say this before we get into it, because I want you to think of this as we walk through it. In many respects, remember Matthew's purpose. Matthew is writing to Jews to convince them that Jesus is this promised Messiah. He's the king. He's the son of David. He's bringing in the kingdom, right? All of that is true. And yet... One of his purposes, and he does it throughout the book, is to remind the Jews that Jesus also came to be the Savior of the world. He came to rescue all people, everywhere. And he begins that here, even in, in chapter 2. As he has, remember, in chapter 1. Remember the genealogy. We have four women that are a part of that, all foreigners. They're, they're not necessarily Jewish ladies, and yet Matthew includes them. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah, the deliverer of all men, not just this national group, the Jews. And so part of that is his focus. Jesus is Lord of all peoples. The second one. The second one, and I think most significant for us today, is to demonstrate the appropriate way to respond to Jesus. How do I respond? How do you respond to the Lord? How should we respond? How should we react to who Jesus is? In a sense, Matthew is going to pit the wise men against the religious leaders in Herod. All of them are offering a response in the verses that follow. What's your response to Jesus? And for some today, you may say in your mind, listen, I don't have an antagonistic response. But are you callous? Are you uncaring? Doesn't really matter. I mean, you know the name Jesus, but it's not really going to affect your life. It's not going to change what you do or why or how. That is the other part of the response. And he introduces that to us really in this next section. Two realities, callous and antagonistic responses to Jesus. Verses three through eight, we see that throughout. Herod now, uh, we have the story, he comes into town. Herod is terrified, he's overwhelmed. And because of that, all Jerusalem's overwhelmed. Now, initially, you look at that, you say, isn't that fascinating? It's wonderful that the city and the leader are together in their terror, right? They are just following their leader. No, that is not what's going on. All Jerusalem is terrified because Herod was a vile, evil, awful, wicked man. I mean, this guy was so fearful of his own kingdom, he killed a wife and sons, two sons, just to protect his own throne. And literally the people are thinking, if Herod's scared, who knows what kind of atrocities he's going to roll out on us. So the city is scared because Herod is scared. And they know how Herod responds when he's afraid or his 
throne is challenged, right? So Herod, in response to this request, he assembles the chief priests, the scribes of all the people, and he tries to figure out to inquire who this really is. Now, remember, Herod is not actually a full Jew. He's part. He's half Jew and he's half not Jew. And because of that, at one point, Herod tried to destroy the family records that were held in the temple, if you recall that. Well, because of that, Herod does not have a good relationship with the religious leaders, the religious authorities. So they don't like him. But not only do they not like him, they don't like each other. If you recall this, right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were always at each other's throat. And I've told you this story before, but if you remember, Paul goes in before the Sanhedrin. And as he stands in front of the Sanhedrin, he realizes, I got a group of Pharisees in the room, and I got a group of Sadducees in the room. And right now, they're all focused on me. Now, we can change that real fast. Because Paul was a Pharisee. He understood the, the relationship, right? So he says, hey, guys, I believe in the resurrection. And now half the room is on his side, right? Because so did the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, they didn't. And so now what happens with the room? They go at each other. And Paul, you know, wisely steps into the shadows, right, of that room as those guys go at each other. This is the relationship. So a couple things are important. Number one, it sounds as if, and again, many times in Scripture, the story is very condensed to communicate a more significant message. So very likely, Herod doesn't call an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't have any right to do that, and likely they'd have told him, we're not coming anyway, number one. Number two, because of their conflict with each other, they didn't want to get together if they didn't have to get together. So potentially, because of Herod's suspicion, Herod speaks to the one group and he says, hey guys, where's this Messiah going to come? And then he calls in the other group and he says, hey guys, where's this Messiah going to come from? And he's trying to get confirmation, right? Because he knows they don't like each other and he knows they don't like him. So he gets confirmation from the groups very likely separately. This is likely not a big uh, assembly or an official kind of meeting. Herod is trying to confer with the experts to figure out where the Messiah is is going to be born. Where is he coming from? And remember, the conflict between them is real. Now, a couple things are fascinating about this. First, and we'll look at this in a minute, but he says, where the Christ, the Christ. Now, this is significant because if we think about this for a moment, there are two different, in our minds in the New Testament, there are two different names for Jesus. Jesus and Christ. But what I want to clarify with you this morning briefly is the difference. If you recall in scripture, Jesus is actually the much more common name designation for the second person of the Trinity than Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is actually the name of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God in his incarnation, his name 
is Jesus. That is personal. In that personal name, there is this invitation. In some senses, maybe a formal invitation, maybe not. But it is an invitation for you and me to have a relationship with Him. Christ is a title. Christ is a description in some respects, a technical term of the messianic redeemer, the messianic deliverer from the Old Testament, the anointed one. This is the name. And that's why for us as a church increasingly over these last six years, I use Jesus a lot more than I use Christ because Jesus is personal. It's his name. It's his name. And yes, Christ also identifies him. It's used significantly throughout the New Testament. I think 531 times. But Jesus is used 917 times in our New Testament. I mean, think about that. There is this personal nature to who Jesus is and an invitation for you and for me. Do you know him? You can. But do you? In part, that's the invitation. Well, Herod is asking about this official title, right? Who is this Messiah? Where is this deliverer? Where is this anointed one? Where is he supposed to be born? So the chief priests and scribes, they come in and they say, well, the Bible tells us we know where, verses 5 and 6, it's promised by the prophet Micah. It's foretold of. We heard the text read a little bit ago. The religious leaders, they know this right away. It's it's in some ways, it's old hat to them. But I I want you to work through in your mind for a moment. You have wise men, quite a a caravan show up. And they say, hey, hey, where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And, and, And Herod translates for them and says, hey, where's Messiah supposed to be born? Now, I don't know about you. But I I must confess, if somebody asked me, and I was used to studying the law and the scribes, they actually copied the law, right? They they wrote it out all day. That's what they did. They knew the law. They were experts in the law. If somebody came to me and said, hey, where's Messiah supposed to be born? My first question would be, why are you asking that? Why do you want want to know that? What's going on? What, What are we talking about here, right? But here's the piece that's fascinating. The chief priests, the scribes, It's like they don't care. Here's the information that has no impact at all on our life. Here's this info. We know the info. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't change anything. We actually don't even care that much about it. Here's what you ask for. That's it. That is the feeling, the response from the, think for a moment, the religious leaders. And this characterization of the religious leaders in Matthew will track all the way to the end of the book where they themselves are crucifying him. There is only three times that these two groups are put together in Matthew. One of them is during the trial. He puts them together again. Initially here, finishes there. It's fascinating. Fascinating. They are opposed to the anointed deliverer from God. Doesn't fit expectations. 
How many times do we respond the same way? Doesn't fit my expectation. Doesn't fit what I anticipated. And so you know what? Doesn't have anything to do with me. It's not going to change my life. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to obey. It's not going to affect me. Doesn't have anything to do with me. I know the information. It's not going to change what I do. It's not going to change how I live. It's not going to change how I respond. This is the error of the religious leaders. Their response is Matthew 5.2. Now the text in Matthew 5.2 is a fascinating passage because it is the middle section of three larger cycles of judgment and salvation that Micah is prophesying to the people. He is telling them judgment is coming, salvation will follow, but judgment is coming. This is the peak. This is the centerpiece of those three judgments. It occurs in the second one. And in the midst of that statement of judgment, there's this reminder. Israel, you forgot where you came from. Remember, you were little. You were small. You started as a tiny little nation, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You were nothing in the grand scheme of the world. That's where you started, but you forgot that. Remember where David started. These humble beginnings for David in Bethlehem. You've forgotten, but you'll be reminded because a deliverer will come from those same humble beginnings. And that's part of God's sign. Part of the deliverance, part of the salvation comes from this humble beginning, this humble starting place. And Micah prophesies of that. Now, what's interesting is many of our prophecies in the Old Testament that are used in the New Testament and kind of complete an idea or, or are fleshed out for us in the New Testament, likely the Old Testament author doesn't fully understand what the New Testament author is telling us this actually meant. Micah's different. Micah 5.2 is the one exception. As Micah writes that, he says, hey, we know the deliverer, the Messiah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's not a mystery. That's exactly what he's describing. This anointed deliverer will come after he is born in Bethlehem. And the straightforward prediction and fulfillment of this prophecy is fascinating. Now, as is often the case, the prophecy isn't exactly the way it's written in Micah 5.2. And many times there's, there's a reason for that. Our Old Testament is based on the Hebrew Masoretic text, but oftentimes our quotes in the New Testament are based on the Old Testament translation, the Septuagint, it was in the Greek. So oftentimes that's where those quotes can change. Sometimes, though, the author changes it on purpose. And in this case, I think that's exactly what he does. If you look again at the end of Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, Who will shepherd my people Israel? Two possible origins of that. Some suggest it's from 2 Samuel 5 and verse 2. Uh, as most of you know, I would much prefer to defer, 
to uh, defer to context. Context in verse 4 of Micah chapter 5 says the same thing. This one, this deliverer, will be a shepherd. Now, shepherd is significant for several reasons. This is an imagery that is used throughout the Old Testament of God and his interaction, relationship to his people. And what it points out, what it implies is several realities. A shepherd offers guidance. A shepherd offers protection. A shepherd offers compassion. A shepherd offers pastoral care in a sense. That's part of the prediction. This deliverer, he is not just going to deliver. He is going to compassionately care for God's people. He is going to guide them as a shepherd guides a flock of sheep. This will be the work of the Redeemer. And if you look back throughout the Old Testament, there are many times that the shepherds are condemned for their failure. The shepherds are told, you're wrong and there's judgment coming because of it. Guess what will happen with Messiah? He will not fail. He will shepherd exactly as God intended guiding, compassionately caring for his people, his flock. What a gift to us, his people, right? But now we see Herod's response. So first you see the response of the chief priest. Now you see Herod's response. And Herod's re- response is protect the, protect the empire, right? We got we to gotta save the empire. Verse 7. So Herod, he summons these wise men to him again secretly and he tries to ascertain from them. He tries to figure out from them, what what time did you see the star? Now, why does that matter? Why does Herod care about that? Well, Herod cares about that because of what he's going to do later in chapter 2. If you recall, we'll, we'll get to this next week. But if you recall, Herod is going to wipe out all the baby boys up to a certain period. Right? Just to make sure he's got them all. Where does he get that number from? Why doesn't he take all the little guys from five years down? Why doesn't he take all of them from six months down? Why, why does he take this number? Likely, he's taking it based on his conversation with the wise men. This is when you saw the star. Aha! That's when we're going to start killing little guys. Right? So that's his first question, second. And he sent them and he says to them, hey, listen, if if you would, go and search for this child diligently. You do everything you can to find him. When you found him, come back to me. Bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. So that I can come and offer my reverence to him. Now in a moment, we'll talk about what the wise men do. Herod had no intention of doing what they're about to do. None. Zero. Herod wants to know where he is so he can cut down on the slaughter of all these little people. Right? At the end, that's going to make him look bad. He doesn't necessarily want to look as bad as he usually does. So if he can find out where this little guy is, then he can cut down on the losses, right, for the nation. Well, that's his purpose. And what I want you to notice is the two responses of the, of the religious leaders in Herod, callous and antagonistic. 
And folks, the truth is, that's still truth today. We have some that could not be more antagonistic to the Lord, to you, His people. We have some that couldn't be more calloused, unfeeling, uncaring. Folks, the reality is all of us will stand before Jesus one day and give account for our lives. And you'll stand before him as one of his people or you'll stand before him not as one of his people. And I promise you the difference will be great. The difference will be great. Are you callous today in your understanding of who Jesus is? Yes, you know he was a good man. Yes, you know he existed. But truthfully, it's not really going to impact your life all that much. For some, and I certainly would would guess not today in this room, but for some, there's a great antagonism to Jesus, to his people. By God's grace, we can respond appropriately to both. Remembering our job isn't necessarily to hold anybody down and convince them. Our job is to demonstrate, as Jesus did throughout his life, that the way to win such people, the way to respond to even enemies, is to love them, as Matthew will tell us in the Sermon on the Mount in just a couple of chapters. Jesus' kingdom economy is very different than any other human kingdom that has ever existed before or since. He calls us to something unique. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. This is the response, even to the antagonistic, to the callous. Love them. Do good to them. Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus was good to you, right? The third response we see is now the response of the wise men. In verses 9 through 12, we see the rejoicing and the worship that's offered to Jesus. So in verse 9, he continues, Matthew says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, what happens? Well, there's that star again that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came and rested over the place where the child was. And when they saw that in verse 10, They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. There is no way to translate this from the original to English and get the feeling of it. They were so exuberantly excited and overjoyed, you can't fathom it, right? I mean, this is a joy that we cannot imagine. And yet, it is a joy that's similar to the joy expressed by Luke in those infancy accounts. This joy characterized people that truly came in contact with Jesus. They were overwhelmed with who he was and truly what he had come to accomplish. God divinely guides them to the place and once they arrive, they are overwhelmed with joy at finding this one. Now, they walk in and verse 11 tells us that Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so their response when they walk through the door and they see the child is something that no American in their right mind would ever do in a million years. 
They fall flat on the ground, literally their foreheads pressed against the floor to demonstrate their reverence, to pay this king the respect that he deserved. This is their response. What's your response to Jesus today? Do you revere him? Do you adore him? Do you understand all that he accomplished for you? All that he has done for you? Do you understand what his birth, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, do you understand what all that means for you? Do you understand today that you are justified if you are in Jesus? You are right before God, not because of anything that you've done. Just because of Jesus. That's it. And how many times does the worship, the adoration, the reverence offered by the wise men put mine and yours to shame? What they offered to Jesus that day, their humility, their honor, far exceeds often what we offer. It shouldn't be the case, but it is. They offer gold, a sign, again, probably, most likely, of royalty as part of the significance. Frankincense and myrrh, these were both um, really luxury items. Uh, one from the rosin of a tree grown in Arabia, India, Somalia. Myrrh was a rosin also from a tree grown in Arabia and Ethiopia. And both of these are significant. Now, Again, as you've heard today, people attach all kinds of symbolism and truths to these. In reality, I don't know that there's any, any symbolism that we need to attach other than this. These items were really expensive and unbelievably luxurious in the day. And they are presented to Jesus because he is worthy of them. And that's it, I think. In verse... 12, Matthew concludes the story and says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word warned there is a verb that often is used to describe a divine utterance. God revealing something, some truth to an individual. That's exactly what happened. God warns the wise men, don't go back to Herod. And how did they respond? Okay, they went home a different route. And what it reminds us of is this. When Joseph is told back at the end of chapter 1, this is what you're to do and this is how you're to respond. What's he do? He wakes up and he does it all. This is the response of the wise men. And I want you to think with me for a moment. I want you to consider with me for just a second how often we, you, struggle to obey the Lord. Oftentimes it feels hard to us or just not even possible to respond with this kind of obedience. Why? Well, in our minds we think, maybe I don't know all the facts. Maybe I don't understand everything I need to understand. I need a fuller picture. Folks, do you see in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you think Joseph had the full picture? No, he did not. 
Do you think the wise men had the full picture? No, they did not. Bluntly, we could argue pretty dogmatically, they didn't even have a full picture who Jesus was. And yet they came to worship. And when God spoke to them, they obeyed. When God speaks to us through the word, what's our response? Uh, I don't know if I see it that way. That's not my interpretation. I, I wouldn't look at it that, no, no, no. Obey. Obey. Hopefully, as you can see as we walk through the story, Jesus is absolutely worthy of our sacrificial worship because Jesus himself came to sacrificially rescue us from sin. Now, one thing, one thing I want you to note. You cannot and will not enjoy that sacrifice or even fully comprehend it if you don't know Jesus. If you have never accepted the gift that is available to you through him. If you have never acknowledged that you need a savior, that Jesus is that savior, that he came to rescue you from your sin, you will not, you cannot enjoy the realities of all that he is and all that he came to accomplish. Many of you know very well, and probably some of you will even read it in the next couple of weeks, the famous story written by O. Henry, The Gift of the Magi. Obviously, you all know it's a story of a husband and wife. They have almost nothing, but in order to get their spouse something that they think they'd love, they'd sell their one possession. Well, in selling their one possession, their spouse buys them the thing to match the thing they sold. And O. Henry, at the end of his story, he actually muses, kind of writes on the response of these two young loves, and he says, Here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that all who give gifts, these are the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts such as these, they are wisest. Everywhere they are the wisest. They are the Magi. Now I want you to think for a moment. The Magi obviously sacrificially offered gifts to Jesus. But as we consider this account for a moment, are the Magi the only ones sacrificially giving in this story? In truth, they are not. The greatest gift being given in this account is still the gift of Yahweh saving. It's still the gift of God dwelling with us. That is still the greatest gift. And that is why we give gifts. And that's why gifts matter, because of that gift. As Paul says to the Corinthian church, this is why you give. 2 Corinthians 9, this is why you give because of the indescribable gift of God, which is Jesus. Are you rejoicing in God's good gift today of Christ? We can, we should, and as we do, it should shape, transform, frame the way that we live is it?